morning. Hello, hello, hello. Very good. So I left my glasses in the car, so if I'm squinting, it's because I can't see. <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you for being here this morning. We thank you for your word and what it means to us in our lives, that it quickens us, that it gives us stability, that it gives us direction, and it gives us for fulfillment in our lives. Thank you for your word. Open it up to our eyes, to our ears, and our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I have two rhetorical questions. The first one is, what is a parable? And if you don't know by now, after we're teaching on these parables, you're in trouble, so you will flunk the test this morning. <clears throat> the second one is, uh, what is the greatest film on the Christian life in the last hundred years? So I'm going to answer both of those questions, even though I know that you know them already, backward and forward. Good morning, Dean. So when we started the vineyard, there was hardly anybody older around, but Dean was around, and he's still around 94, Dean? 94. Let's give him a round of applause. So a parable is an illustration or a story of a concept. The kingdom of God is like, and this is what we've been going through, and in this particular chapter 13, it's full of parables. There's eight of them, and they're illustrations, and they're culturally relevant. So they wouldn't have said this 2,000 years ago, but the kingdom of God is like air. Why? Is it like air? Because it's invisible, which the kingdom is invisible. It gives us life. <clears throat> I had a good asthma attack this morning, so I'm very aware that without oxygen, you can't breathe. And without it, you are dead. It's the same with the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is like air. The film that I'm referring to, I like to watch films is one of the things that I do to relax, and I was watching Field of Dreams uh, about six, eight months ago, and in the middle of it, I'm thinking, this is too Christian to have not been put together in some Christian way. So I got on the internet and said, Field of Dreams, Christian, and there was a six-page write-up on how this was the most Christian film in the last hundred years on the parable of the Christian life which I went, thank you, Jesus, I knew I was right. <laughs> and so I'm going to do a little bit on there, because the Field of Dreams is about a man who buys a field, which is what we're going to look at as the main parable, and makes huge sacrifices in buying this field. And he hears, how many of, how many of you have seen Field of Dreams? Good. The rest of you may be sentenced to where the bad fish go. You haven't read the passages. I can tell I didn't get any response to that whatsoever. Okay, <clears throat> so um, 
he hears a voice in a field and it sets him on a journey of redemption and reconciliation. Last night when I finished, one of the fun things in teaching the vineyard is you get a Saturday night, which is kind of your warm-up to Sunday morning. And so a lot of the older gang was there that know me well, and two of them came up and said, you didn't share enough about yourself. So I always am tentative to think about how much do you share about yourself. So this morning I thought I'd add a little bit more in in terms of my journey and why Field of Dreams is meaningful to me on it. So part of that is why it's meaningful is I think we hear the voice of God through reading the word of God. Not just on Sunday mornings. You're in trouble if you don't have a deeper devotional life than Sunday mornings. But if you're sitting and listening to God, you're going to hear his voice. So a few years ago, eight years ago, when I was 56, I heard God saying over and over and over again, you need to quit running the counseling agency and you need to move into community development. Um, Ed Harrell was very helpful. He was a huge part of this transition in my life. But one of the things that was difficult is I was very established. I'm still established. I get a call every day that I'm the head counselor in Tucson, which I don't have that role anymore. But because I got so established, it was hard letting go of that identity letting go of that position. And I was old enough at that point in time to retire. So the whole issue of starting over again, shedding an old self and putting on a new self, which is what we're going to talk about and give a little bit on, was a big part of my journey. So that's why Field of Dreams is important to me and some of the things that I see, because when God speaks to you, and he will, he'll speak to everyone in this room and talk to you and tell you where you're to trust him and obey him and where you're to go. And a lot of times that costs you something. It's a huge sacrifice. When I let go of the counseling agency, one of the things for me that happened was I was starting all over again, which is hard to do in starting organizations. I started a doctoral program at 56 years old, and I'm not very academic. So that was hard, and my dad started with Alzheimer's, so I was in the process of letting go of family members. So on this, one of the things that happens is when we commit to faith, there's always a trial. Blackaby says there's always a crisis of faith when we make a commitment into faith, and that's what happens in, in the field of dreams, is that Ray hears this voice. He says, if you build it, He will come. And the problem is he doesn't know what he's to build, which is the mystery of faith, and he doesn't know who will come. He thinks it's Shoeless Joe Jackson, but he's wrong, which is a big part of what happens with us. When we walk in faith, we walk in mystery. We don't get to see everything. We get little glimpses, but we don't get to see it. So we step into a darkness, into something that we can't grab a hold of, and all we know is that we're being called and called into that. So that's what happens to him. He hears the voice. He starts these sacrifices. He knows that there's a promise, but the promises are vague, spiritual, and future, which are like the mystery of faith. So one of the questions I have for you this morning is, how does the voice of God relate to you, to your heart, to your life? And what are you to do with it? And are you listening? So 
with Ray, one of the things that happens in the film is once he gets this calling, he does some research and he finds out about Shoeless Joe Jackson. And Shoeless Joe Jackson was a guy that was one of the greatest baseball players ever, but he took a bribe. We would call that sin on a Sunday morning, right? You guys are awful quiet again. <laughs> I say something wrong? I took a shower. <laughs> so he sins and he loses what he loves the most, which is baseball. So he's in a place of a negative consequence, and then Ray comes along, hears a voice, he's called into redemption, and he's redeeming the life of Shoeless Joe Jackson. So the scene that I'm going to show you is that he starts out and he makes this big commitment. You know that he plows his field under. He builds a baseball diamond and he thinks he's waiting for Shoeless to show up and Shoeless is not showing up. So he goes through a whole season of trial to where this becomes too great a burden before Shoeless shows up. Okay. So how bad is it? Well, considering how much less acreage we have for corn, I say we'll probably almost break even. We used up all our savings on that field, Ray. Daddy? Just a minute, Karen. So what are you saying? We can't keep the field? Makes it real hard to keep the farm. Daddy? In a minute, Karen. There's a man out there on your lawn.
Sorry. I, I get some out there. you don't know what I'm losing. I leak a lot. So it's not asthma right now. So one of the reasons it touches me is all of us really want to believe that God is really real. We don't come to church just because it's a ritual, something that our families did. We come to church because we believe that God is real and that his word is real. And oftentimes what substantiates that is an answer to prayer where we see the miracles of God. And it means a lot to us. We started the vineyard. Um, we grew from a Bible study of seven to 100 kids in six months. So we were in a building up the street, and we thought, okay, Lord, we need a building, and we want to believe that you're really there, but we don't have any money, and we're kids. What do we do? So I had started halfway houses with, with college students, and two of them and Jim Olson were walking around this neighborhood looking for a place. And in 1970, this was a black neighborhood. You guys probably didn't know that. But <coughs> this was a black Baptist church. Did you know that? How many knew that? So Jim Olson walks up here, and while they're looking around the premises, this black lady runs up, and she goes, would you like to have this church? <laughs> and Jim says, sure, but we don't have any money. She goes, we're behind on our payments. We're three payments behind, $168 a month. You can have it for three payments. So we bought this building for three back payments. $19,000 mortgage for less than $500. We bought this building in that January 1971. So it relates to shoeless to me. So, moving right along, in this chapter, there are eight parables. Uh, Chris and Jerry have been covering a lot of the parables. I have four this morning. The treasure in the field, the pearl, pearl of great price, the good fish and the bad fish, and the storehouse of truth. And I'm going to focus mainly on the treasure of the field. Um, I'll be lucky to get to some of the other ones, but I'm going to start with that. So let's read that, Matthew thirteen forty four. Read it with me. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. In his excitement, he, he hit it again. So we have enough money to buy this field. 
Okay, so the kingdom of God is like, like what? It's like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. So he sells everything so he can have this treasure. So what's a treasure? It's something of great value. So he's going to invest everything he has to gain this treasure. It's like if I give you a hot stock tip this morning. Apple's going to be worth, sold for, I think at one point in time, $100 a share. If you would have bought that like 10 years before, or before it got to, I think it went up to like, I don't know, $5,000 a share or some ridiculous amount. When you're looking at value, he's saying you can invest everything you have because what's most valuable is the kingdom of God. And he's trying to, in this parable, he's trying to show us that this treasure is the most valuable thing in the world. It's, it's kind of a picture, an illustration that the kingdom of God is a thing that we possess. It's a treasure of great value, and it's there for us if we want it. So the person is you. The treasure is the kingdom, but the person is you. Do you want it? Do you want this thing of great value? I was watching an evangelical teach on this, and I think one of the mistakes that we've made is we teach the treasure is salvation. It's a very self-centered view of this passage. The kingdom of God is a lot greater than salvation that's offered to us. Can we go to the chart? So look on this chart. The kingdom of God is represented by Christ and his kingdom. Christ is the king. And there are two main aspects, I think, in the inclusion of the kingdom of God. There's grace and truth. How do we know that? Because Christ is the manifestation of grace and truth, right? So in our day and age, in post-modernity, we like the grace part. We're not so sure we like the truth part. So a lot of truth has been knocked out. A lot of the philosophers would say that we do not believe in propositional truth anymore. That the word of God is just personal opinion rather than it has authority over our lives. So grace has a definition of love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And I really appreciate that in this culture. We're very, very grace-saturated in our culture, whether believers or not. I think it's a great thing. If you know me, you know I do issues with debt. I like that uh, we have so much forgiveness in terms of debt at this point in time. Not student loans. Sorry, students. But um, in a lot of areas, we have forgiveness. If you look back historically, we were a much more punitive culture in the past. If you went into debt in England 100 years ago, you what? What happened to you? Debtor's prison. In debtor's prison, you got four ounces of bread a day and a cup of tea. So what happened? You deteriorated. So there's a good chance just by going into debt, you were going to die. So it's great to have grace and grace is very much an inclusion issue. It causes us to, to feel like we belong. One little story on this, there's a guy up in Phoenix that was a successor to his dad as a, as a pastor, and he's preaching on Sunday morning, and he was terrible. So all the men in the church told him he was terrible and he'd never be a preacher. And he felt horrible. 
And so he said, what I did is I went over to grandma's because grandmas are oftentimes the incarnation of grace. Amen? He gets to grandma and he says, Grandma, I feel bad. I'm, I'm just a bad preacher. She says, Honey, nobody preaches as good as you. You're the best preacher I've ever heard. And he says, Thank you, Jesus, for lying grandmothers. <laughs> Grace is not based on performance. It's inclusion based on God's goodness, not on our performance. We all like that. On the other side is truth. And truth is harsher, more difficult. I had hands raised last night. How many people have read The Demands of Jesus by Piper? I would suggest that everybody read it while we're going through the book of Matthew. It's a hard book to read. And a lot of times when we read The Demands of Jesus, we say... We want the soft Jesus. We don't want the hard Jesus. Because the demands of Jesus are upon every one of your lives. He requires that, and he holds you accountable on whether you're going to obey him. And that's very uncomfortable. We do not like demanding people, whether males or females. We have names for both of them. I can't say them on Sunday morning, but we have names for people that are very demanding Jerry Bowen was going into this uh, last week with exclusion is about judgment. The kingdom of God, you have to make the team. Read the verses on discipleship. There are qualifiers. I'm sorry. There's many, many qualifiers to be in the kingdom of God. You're excluded if you don't become a disciple. You're a sheep or a goat. There's a division between inclusion and exclusion. We like lying grandmothers more than coaches. So an example on a coach. had a client that was overweight. He had a coach that saw that he was overweight, so he knew that the best thing for him was to make demands on him, so he made him run every day in PE. And he was harsh and demanding, which I would say is law rather than grace, but it's part of grace because in grace is truth. So he made him run and run and run. He hated this coach, just hated him that he made him do these things. He finished middle school, went on to high school. He realized that he was a pretty good runner and he'd lost all his weight, so he continued to run. When he got into his senior year, he took state in cross country. When he won, he realized, I owe everything to that miserable son of a gun coach. And he lost his bitterness. Because he saw that sometimes demands are the most important thing in our lives. And when we shun the demands of the kingdom, oftentimes we're missing out on the greatest grace that we can have. So we can't do them without a dependency upon God. So truth includes requirements and accountability, and it also deals with exclusion, which is hard. And I'm not going to go into all the theology on that, but it's one of the parts of the kingdom. This is a quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and I know a lot of you are young. How many, how many don't know who he is? Okay, so he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He was a Russian. He helped in a lot of his writings. He wrote the Gulag and uh, was a great intellect in Russia, and he wrote um, a, actually quite a few books, but he also spoke at... Um, 
a Harvard commencement address, and here's what he said about what happened in the West. He says, the West has thrown away God as well as the accountabilities and the depths of purpose that used to be attached to a relationship with God, which on the kingdom is the true side. He believes the church in America has thrown away the truth side of the kingdom. It's one of the weaknesses of us as a believing community. So on this kingdom that's so valuable, the kingdom is manifest in an imperfect world. Bill Enboden and I were talking about this last week afterwards. This chapter is the chapter of ambiguity. The Olivet Discourse is a chapter about how there's good and evil everywhere, and you have to accept it. It's huge. Bill brought up to me that um, Jerry was talking about the, the mustard seed, and it grows into a tree, and then the birds land in the tree. What are the birds a symbol of? Bill, you can't answer. What are they a symbol of? You're mumbling. I'm old. Speak a little louder. Evil, yes. So here we have great faith, and in the midst of it, we have great evil. So ambiguity and embracing ambiguity is a huge issue. So we live in an imperfect world, but the promise of the kingdom is that this world will be transformed into a perfect world without evil, suffering, selfishness, injustice, earthquakes, storms, famines, poverty, crime, disease, illiteracy, drugs, death, the devil's rule, broken relationships, and so much more. Pretty good promise. You can see it all the way through the whole Bible that we see that we're moving towards this perfect world. And it's not just the absence of evil. It's also every good thing that God has to give. What the prophets called shalom is how this concept of the kingdom developed out of the Old Testament where relationships are right, just, and loving, whether in family whether in business or politics or whatever, all relationships with God in the environment are made right in the kingdom of God. So the question becomes, is this something we want? Well, my belief is is everybody's deepest heart longing is to have a kingdom like this, to be involved in a kingdom like this. Timothy Keller says that all the myths and themes of the great stories of literature, all the happily ever afters, are a foretaste of the kingdom of God. That our greatest desires are fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Field of dreams. So I'll give you a personal one. When I was pastoring here, we had 23 ministries that were penetrating the community. One of my great dreams was that we'd launch these into the community and penetrate them. Um, I crashed and burned on some of those, and that dream died. But the thing that I was telling you about earlier, when I let go of the counseling agency, I started a new agency next door, Community Renewal, and one of the things that's been so much fun for me is one of my dreams was that we could birth organizations, and that's actually what we did. So Cherie's over here nodding because she was one of the early birthed groups that we had. And in the last 12 years, I'm not sure, we've birthed somewhere between 20 and 40 different organizations in the community, which was a dream for me. Part of the field of dreams. So our greatest heart longings are oftentimes fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
and there's something that God works out, he gets the glory, but we are personally a part of. Oftentimes when we think about the kingdom of God, we think about it in terms of it's all about Christ being glorified, us worshiping God, us serving others, and we don't see the personal element. And there's a scene in the Field of Dreams that I really like where um, Ray, Kevin Costner, is talking to Shoeless Joe, who's dead. You guys know that, but he's been resurrected. And uh, as they're talking, uh, Shoeless says to James Earl, James, say, give me a hand. Okay, thanks. What you guys said. So uh, he says, you get to go out in the field, and it upsets Ray, and he says, I've been obeying the voice. I've been making all these sacrifices, and he's upset, and he says, what do I get? And he goes, so it's about you, and it embarrasses him. He's ashamed, and he feels that way, but he doesn't want to admit it, and I think we all have some of that. Is it about us at all? Is the kingdom of God about us at all? So one of the things that is sweet in this film is that the kingdom of God is about the restoration of all things that are wrong. Everything that's wrong will be restored. Every broken relationship will be mended. Everything that's lost will be found. So the kingdom of God is so restorative that it's hard to imagine and it means something to all of us because we all have brokenness in our life. So Ray has told the story about as a teenager how he had a falling out with his his father and in that falling out he never went back before his father died. So he's arguing with Shoeless and he gives up the argument and kind of you can see him surrender, which is a big part of us and dying to self and, and doing what we're supposed to do. And as he walks off, he says to him, if you build it, he will come. Who's the he? Who's the he? His father. So all of a sudden, he turns and his father pulls off his his mask. And he realizes that it is about him, his heart longings for restoration of brokenness. So the movie is about redemption for Shoeless, but it's reconciliation. It's about the kingdom of God and that coming about. So it has great personal meaning. Faith and sacrifice has great reward, which is what the kingdom promises. Rewards that are more valuable than anything that you could do here. You guys probably have heard this story, but this guy goes up to heaven and the, the angel says to him, you can bring anything from earth that you want. And he says, okay, great. So a week later he comes and he has a suitcase and he walks in and, 
And he says, what's in the suitcase? And he opens the suitcase, and it's full of gold. And the angel goes, you brought asphalt? <laughs> the kingdom of God's upside down. We talked about that last time, last night, that it's upside down. And we get very confused with this kingdom and his kingdom and the rewards. But when we follow his voice hear his voice and trust him, we get the rewards of the kingdom, which are much more meaningful and much more valuable. Let's go to the the verses. Do you know where they, can you see them, Chris? Okay, this is, this is on our identities, which I guess I'll, I'll just hit this for a second. One of the great things that is personal is that we start out with a self that's independent from God. So what Jerry Bowen was talking about last time about giving up our self-will, that's the independent self. Even the most religious of you have an independent self that is full of sin. That's hard sometimes in church because you might look better than the person next to you, especially if they're ex-offender or a drug addict or something like that. But you actually know better than they are. As everybody starts out with an independent, we move to a dependent self that gets developed. So this is um, a verse in terms of this new self. Read it with me. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life, true self, is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So our true selves are being revealed as we walk in faith. We shed old selves. Every time we let go of a position of importance, every time we let go of a role to follow that voice, that's the voice of God, we shed an old self. And as we shed that old self, the new self is more revealed. You have a, there is a I and thou. There is a real self that relates to God that becomes revealed. The next one, Chris. Read this with me. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. So we have a lot of identities so we go through this life, we have a lot of identities. Some of those identities are completely independent from God. You know those. Some of them are mixed. But there's a true identity that Christ will reveal to you that's a part of you being a new creature in Christ. And there's a promise that we'll eventually understand who we really are in Christ. It's part of the kingdom. It's part of this revelation. It's part of this transformation that goes on. And it's confusing to us because we're not oftentimes, I'm 68, we'll be 69. I'm still figuring out who I'm going to be when I grow up. Because we unfold in terms of the new self. That new self is constantly unfolding. It says that we're delivered over to death daily that the life of Christ may be manifest. The deliverance over to death is the death of that old independent self for the new self. And we have choices, and those choices are significant that help us to see who we are. Do we have the butterfly one?
all butterflies undergo an amazing transformation during their life cycle. The insect begins as an egg, then a crawling caterpillar, followed by the pupa stage. During this stage, the caterpillar begins to convulse in rhythmic jerks, breaking off its outer skin. Its legs and head capsule are quickly shed, giving rise to a chrysalis. Then, within the first day, the caterpillar's organs disintegrate into a soupy liquid. Miraculously, after one to two weeks, a complex winged butterfly emerges. This metamorphosis takes place in a matter of days, not millions of years. The adult butterfly okay. now... So you can see quickly those stages. Some of us have identities as an egg. I'm an egghead. So we have identities as eggs. Some of us have identities as worms. And you can hear them say, I'm going to be the best worm I possibly can be may not be a kingdom vision, especially for somebody that's going to be a, a butterfly. The cattle, the, um, forgot the word, chrysalis, thanks. I'm without words this morning, amazing. Huh? The chrysalis is where God deconstructs the worm, and you can hear the deconstruction in that, and he reconstructs a butterfly. Some of us do not want to go there. We don't want to be deconstructed. I'll stay the best worm I possibly can be, caterpillar. But his plan is to bring us into this place of being a beautiful butterfly. I've used this before, but C.S. Lewis said, if we could see today what we're going to look like in heaven, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship human beings. There is a great transformation in terms of this, and that's what God is doing. That's why he gets the glory. He's doing it, but we do have choices. When we're delivered over to death daily, we have a choice to hold on or to surrender. And in that surrender, see that new creature develop and develop further. Okay, let's read those scriptures, and then I'll, I'll quit. Okay. Here's the four parables. The kingdom, read it with me. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. He discovered a pearl of great value. He sold everything he owned and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. At the end of the world. The angels will come, separate from the righteous. furnace, Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. 
And then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. So we did the first one. I spent the whole time on the first one. Sorry if you were invested in some of the other ones. The second one, the merchant represents the kingdom of of God. So the merchant is who? Jesus. He's the one that buys the pearl of great price. So who's the pearl of great price? We are. Yeah. Christ sees you as having great value and he gives everything to affirm your value. So that's a huge one. I gave a little story last night just about transactions. Sometimes you've heard in your families or from people that are close to you that you're not valuable, but you are valuable. God sees us as not worthy, but worth it. Not worthy, but worth it. So he assigns value to us, and when we believe that, we become people of value. The third one is the good fish versus the bad fish, and this is really Jerry Bowen's talk on the wheat and the tares. It's the issue that our job description is not to judge everyone. The hard part in the faith area is that we learn that part of our faith is values. Things are good and bad. We learn that they're moral, they're right and wrong. We learn that they're missional and that they have purpose. So we tend to judge people that way, and what it's saying is that's not our job description. We're not to be judgmental. My grandma used to say, there's so much good in the worst of us, there's so much bad in the best of us that it ill behooves any of us to judge the rest of us. I remember that from when I was 10 years old. Pretty good, huh? So that's what he's saying, is that we as believers are not to judge in that way. But it's hard, because we learn in our worldview that values and morals and purposes are a part of the kingdom, but the kingdom is centrally relational. So we're not to judge that way. And the last one is the meta narrative of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is about the kingdom. The two messiahs, the suffering servant who looks like a sinner and the conquering king of glory, um, they're both the same person. And so we're to understand the meta narrative of Scripture if we're going to be a disciple of the kingdom. Can you put up the, the last one, Chris? The, so this is uh, a confession um, in terms of the kingdom of God. Would you stand and read it with me? We serve a risen Savior, yet live as if in chains. Forgive us, Lord, that we are so hesitant to live the resurrection life. Forgive us that we fail to show through word and action the truth through the glorious mystery of the cross. Forgive us that there is still fear in our lives that prevents us from achieving our full potential in you. Draw us close. Open our eyes to the glory of the risen Christ, our hearts to the wonder of the cross, our identities to who we truly are in Christ, 
and our hands to the service of your kingdom where you have placed us, that your name might be glorified by us. Amen. You can sit down. So we are going to do communion together. And one of the reasons I think this is such a meaningful ritual is that it's about sharing in the life of Christ. He says this, do this in remembrance of me until I come back as the king of glory. So it's part of the mystery of life. It's part of our commitment to share in his life. And it's about buying the field. It's about that we're investing in the kingdom of God. So part of doing communion is recognizing that we have accepted him as our Savior, as our Lord, and that we're committed to his kingdom and the purposes of his kingdom until he comes again and establishes his rule and reign with everybody, not just in our hearts. So we would like you to reflect upon the price that he paid as well as the price that we are to pay in valuing this treasure, the kingdom of God and learning to walk in faith, listening to his voice, trusting him, and obeying him so our new identity can be manifest and bring glory to him as well as honor to us. So can I have the team come on up? Lord, just thank you again for your kingdom, that you have offered it to us. Help us to really get a taste and a glimpse of the value of that kingdom and what it means to us personally. In Jesus' name we pray.